I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Would you raise your right hand, sir? Do you solemnly declare and affirm under the penalties of perjury that the testimony you should give should be the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth? I do. You've heard short excerpts from this deposition in previous episodes, and I told you I'd explain it later. Well, that's what we're going to do now. And that term, deposition, is going to come up a lot. So for those who aren't sure what it means, just know that it's testimony taken under oath to be used as evidence in a court case. Could you state your name, please, sir? Lawrence Thomas Horn. I'm going to be asking you a series of questions during this deposition. Lawrence Horn sat down for this deposition at 9.31 a.m. on July 6, 1994, at the Montgomery County Courthouse in Maryland. Do you have any questions about that? No. Millie Horn's two sisters and her daughter Tiffany had filed a civil suit to keep him from inheriting his son's $1.7 million estate. Did you ever have any discussions or were you present at any discussions about what would happen to Trevor's estate if Millie died? If Millie... If Millie died? Yes. If Millie and Trevor died. Okay, say that again now. Any discussions of what would happen to Trevor's estate if Millie and Trevor died? Did I have any discussions? Yes. No. This deposition is stunning to listen to. His tone, the way he takes his time in answering certain questions, the way he dodges others. Lawrence would sit through two days of this in pursuit of Trevor's estate. We thought we had done well for this family. That's attorney John Marshall. He helped win that settlement money. And yet we created the monster by doing well. I don't think any of us regret what we did. It's just you don't know what people are capable of. Marshall referred Millie's family to attorney Glenn Cooper whose voice you hear questioning Lawrence on the tape, and his co-counsel, Trish Weaver. Within the week that the murders had occurred, Millie's sisters, Elaine and Marilyn, came to the firm, and they 
basically said, you know, they firmly believe that Lawrence Horn was responsible for the murder of their sister and their nephew, as well as Janice Saunders. The family started this process 10 days after the murders because there was a sense of urgency here. It was the family's concern that he would try to himself get control of the estate, distribute the money to himself, and, you know, by the time something happened down the road, it would be too late and the money would be gone. It was a case that would run parallel to the police investigation and provide law enforcement with a number of insights and leads. Here's Lawrence's defense attorney from the criminal trial, Jeff O'Toole, who remembers the deposition well. He was torn between keeping very careful and trying to keep his eye on the prize with the money, while at the same time trying not to implicate himself in the murder case. And I think Lawrence Horn thought he was smart enough to do both. I'm Jasmine Morris from iHeartRadio and Hit Home Media. This is Hitman. At the time Lawrence sat down for this deposition, almost a year and a half into the criminal investigation looking into who murdered Millie and Trevor Horn and Janice Saunders, detectives had compiled a ton of circumstantial evidence. There were surveillance tapes of Millie's house found in Lawrence's apartment, a map of Millie's neighborhood, and even an accidental recording on his answering machine that seemed to be him and the contract killer confirming the hit. As we've noted, everyone thought Lawrence was behind this. But he had an airtight alibi. He'd recorded himself sitting in his apartment in L.A. at the time of the murders. And the alleged hitman, James Perry, had left behind no fingerprints, no DNA, footprints, or physical evidence. The police had discovered that Perry bought the how-to book Hitman, a technical manual for independent contractors. And it laid out what investigators called a blueprint for the crimes. In fact, he seemed to have followed something like two dozen of its recommendations for a successful hit. But again, that was all circumstantial. And what investigators were really struggling with was that there was no actual connection between Lawrence Horn and James Perry. So that whole time, Lawrence was free, just going about his life, trying to pull off the final stages of his plan. What was that year like where your dad was just out there? It was terrifying for me. I mean, I was an emotional wreck. This is from one of the many interviews I did with his daughter, Tiffany, who was 18 at the time of the murders. I was afraid that my dad would actually come after me because I had information and I was one of the people that, you know, gave the police so much of his background to kind of show them that my dad could do that. In May 1993, just two months after the murders, Lawrence came back to Maryland. Supposedly, he was consulting with attorneys on custody issues. Millie's sister, Elaine, had been awarded temporary guardianship of Trevor's twin sister, Tamiel. Which wouldn't be surprising given how cautious he was about making sure his daughters wouldn't be home the night of the murders. I think he set it up the way he did because I think he really did not want me and my sister to be murdered. That's why he was calling to find out where my sister was and making sure I was at school. Because I really do believe that he thought that was salvaging at least some of his family and that I would 
take ownership of my sister because I was 18 and move her out to California with him and his family. Remember, Lawrence's nickname back in his Navy days was Your Man with the Plan. And maybe he thought his plan was really working. He'd evade justice, he'd get the $1.7 million, and not just the money, but his daughters too. But Millie's sisters were a lot like she was. Tough, determined, willful, like these steel magnolias who looked out for one another. And they were never going to let him near Tamiel, Tiffany, or the estate. So in Maryland, there is something called the Slayer's Rule. Again, Trish Weaver. It stands for the very basic proposition that if you are responsible for killing someone, you don't get to inherit from them. Okay, so the Slayer's Rule. It's important that we understand this in order to understand what's happening in Lawrence's deposition. Crime shouldn't pay. It's a principle that goes all the way back to the beginnings of common law. The Romans had a maxim. Our engineer, Jacopo Penzo, actually speaks Latin. I'll let him tell you. Nullus commodum capere potest de inuria sua propria. It translates to, no one can derive an advantage from his own wrong. Along the way, you see it gets implemented in different societies. In the Middle Ages, kings made sure that anyone found to have committed a felony really paid. They had to give up their property rights. The U.S. actually didn't have a similar rule until 1886. This case is a little tricky, but the simple version is a guy took a life insurance policy out on his friend, then killed him. When the insurance company refused to pay, he sued them for the money. It went all the way to the Supreme Court, who said it would be a reproach to the jurisprudence of the country if one could recover insurance money payable on the death of a party whose life he had feloniously taken. Morally, it makes perfect sense. However, it can be tough to apply. Like, what if it's a car crash, so you're guilty of involuntary manslaughter? What if you're found not guilty by reason of insanity? Do you still get the inheritance then? It can get murky. And here's the other thing. The Slayer's Rule gets applied in civil court, not criminal court. And the burden of proof is totally different. In other words, you can be acquitted of murder in a criminal trial and still lose your inheritance in a lawsuit like this one. So in pursuit of Trevor's inheritance, Lawrence sat down for this deposition. He was not ruffled. He didn't appear to break a sweat, you know, and he answered questions for two days. And I think he truly believed that he was going to be outsmarting everybody, that he was going to get away with it. There was one big problem for Lawrence, though. Prosecutors from the criminal case had decided to use his deposition as a kind of Trojan horse. They were racing. They had to prove Lawrence Horn hired someone to murder his family for money before he could get his hands on the money. Glenn Cooper was representing a family. Glenn would call from time to time, what's going on? I said, I can't tell you a lot. We are where we are on this. But he said, but if, if by chance during your deposition of him, you ask him about a calling card, it may be helpful to all of us. <laughs> so he, he questioned He had no idea what I was talking about. Go back to this calling card in some other name. So he asked that in the deposition for you, essentially. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to say there are so many important calls in this investigation. 143 to be exact. So it's okay if you lose track sometimes. Investigators spent months now combing through the phone records of Lawrence Horn and James Perry. And eventually, they figured out that the two men, one living in L.A. and the other in Detroit, 
had been using the same calling card, registered under a fake name for a full year before the murders. Just for the record, Lawrence claims he was using this card to call other women, so his live-in girlfriend didn't find out. And even though they were both using the calling card, neither was calling each other's house. They used payphones a lot, so they wouldn't be caught talking to each other. And investigators had no way of knowing what was actually being said on these calls. We still needed to somehow find out how in the world do we connect Lawrence Horn and James Perry. We've got phone records, you know, we've got, okay, Detroit. And we put up a surveillance. They started tallying Perry 24-7. Honestly, if there wasn't already so much to cover in the series, we could have done a whole episode on the surveillance alone. And we basically wound up uh, setting wiretaps up on uh, James Perry's house. We had, uh, oh, I guess four separate wiretaps going. They keep on Perry for months, unable to catch him in conversation with Lawrence Horn. But then they notice he's been hanging out with this one guy a lot, Thomas Turner. So we followed him and got his uh, tag number and found out Thomas Turner. Well, who the heck is Thomas Turner? Well, he's Lawrence Horn's cousin. It wasn't until they got a warrant to tap Turner's phone when they realized just how Perry and Horn had been communicating. They'd later learn Turner also rented the cars Perry used to go to Maryland. There was a, a series of calls that were generated. Horn to Turner, his cousin, trying to set up a call with Perry. And vice versa, Perry would use Turner to set up calls with Horn. So we're catching all this on wire intercepts. The following has been edited for time and clarity. Yellow. Hey, man, this is your cousin. Hey, I've been trying to catch up to you. Uh, is it possible to, to make a contact tomorrow? Uh, yeah. Set it up the call so I know, you know, when to go. All right. Okay, take care. All right, say hello tomorrow. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay, uh, I need to talk to you. Is that number still the same over at uh, your older brother? I think so. Would it be possible for you to see, because I can give you a call over there. You know what I'm saying, just in case... Uh, we're not cool here. Can we hook it up any time later? Investigators believed this older brother was actually James Perry. They were talking about money. Lawrence was keeping Perry posted on the progress of the estate litigation, and Perry was demanding payment. Hello? Uh, yeah, it's Thomas there. Uh, hold on, okay. Hello? Yeah. What's up? Yeah, well, I just uh, wanted to uh, have a conversation with you, and I just want, you know, if uh, if you feel that, uh, you know, everything is cool on your end, then, you know. Well, all right, uh, I won't discuss too much, you know what I mean? Okay. All right. Bye-bye. You know, the problem I'm having? Yeah, I have a... So I just wanted to get in the position where, you know, I felt that you were comfortable uh, in talking, you know, so that we could talk freely. I mentioned, you know, uh, going over to, uh, you know, your older brother. Yeah. Because it's probably, you know, clean, you know, there's no problem there. Uh, yeah, about 10, you know, 10 times. Okay. Yeah. okay. I'll tell him expect to come. All right. All right. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Once they knew Turner was the broker, Prosecutor Bob Dean went out to Detroit to pull him in. Yeah, it was the FBI office we brought him to and sat down and had a heart-to-heart with him. He didn't want to say anything. He called up Lawrence Horn, and Lawrence Horn told him, I'm going to get you a lawyer. Don't say anything. Were you still monitoring? I was with him. I was with him. Oh, when he made the call? Yeah. 
He was with the, he was with the police. He was the Montgomery County Police and 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 the FBI. And I mean, he called Lawrence right in front of you. Yeah. Yes. God, does that say something? <laughs> yes, of course it does. That same day, wiretaps caught this call between Lawrence and Turner's wife, Cynthia. Hello. Hey, Cynthia. Yeah. It's Lawrence again. Did hey. Thomas call you? Yeah, he did. Okay. Okay. Now, uh, from what he's telling me, it's like uh, they're trying to force him into making some statements or something. Right. That's what he's trying to tell me. But I told him I say. Take your time and listen, and then answer the questions, you know. Well, the point is this. He does not have to say anything. Oh, okay. This isn't the same quiet Lawrence Horn from the other recordings, or even the deposition. He sounds rattled. They investigated everybody out here. Oh, okay. And uh, then they said they were going back to Detroit. Then Cynthia shares even worse news. uh, They said they already been to James' house. That's James Perry. Uh, Yeah. So... Anyway, uh, Jesus. Lawrence's plot was starting to unravel. So investigators had wiretaps proving this web of communication. And still, Lawrence denied it all in his deposition. Do you know how Mr. Turner knows Mr. Perry? No. And if Mr. Turner and Mr. Perry conspired to murder your former wife, and your son, and your son's nurse. They did so completely on their own and without any involvement of you, by you, is that correct? She actually formed the human answer. Yes. We'll be right back. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. Is she breathing right now? Yes, she's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. 
It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. If you want to understand just how much trouble this deposition would end up being for Lawrence, just listen to this statement from prosecution during Lawrence's trial. Quote, During that deposition, despite all these phone calls and these contacts between the two, and despite what you're going to hear about Thomas Turner setting up the phone calls for them to continue talking, Lawrence Horn denies knowing James Perry over and over again. Not only denies knowing him, but says, I never called him. Don't know what you're talking about. There are a few moments in this deposition that I had to listen to a couple times. The following has been edited down, but I promise you, this is real. When you were in the Navy, there was apparently an incident where a sailor was lost at sea. If you understand the question, you can answer it. Oh, I see. Yes. Would you repeat the question? When you were in the Navy, there was apparently an incident where a sailor was lost at sea on your ship. Do you recall any such incident? No, I do not. Uh, during the period when you were in the Navy, what ships were you shipped on? I served aboard the um, USS Lake Champlain, CVS 39. And during that period of time, there was never anyone lost to sea on the Lake Champlain? Objection. He asked him for his own understanding of whether there was ever anyone lost to sea that he may or may not know about. Well, if he doesn't know about it, obviously he can't tell us about it, right? So I'm asking, to his knowledge, was there anyone ever lost to sea on the Lake Champlain while you served on it? I'm not aware of any. This part of the deposition jumps out because it seems so strange. Why would they ask about a man being thrown overboard decades before? Well, Tiffany has an answer. She said that Lawrence used to brag to her about killing a man at sea. It was one of the first red flags she told investigators after her family was murdered. I mean, we'll never know if this actually happened. And from what attorneys have told me, this was never investigated. He was never accused or prosecuted. But that's the rumor they're getting at in this deposition here. I really can never predict where this story will go. Like Tiffany once told me, this isn't one story, it's 50. And the thing is, Lawrence didn't have to answer any of these questions. Again, here's Trish Weaver. 
he hadn't been indicted yet. Nobody had been indicted, but he clearly had to know that he was under investigation. And so he could have come to that deposition and asserted his Fifth Amendment privilege and not answered any of the questions. Instead, he answered questions for two days about his motives, about his desire to get the money, about what he knew about a variety of different things. Because in a Maryland civil case, if a person asserts their Fifth Amendment and refuses to answer questions, it doesn't look good. In the civil case, the fact finder could say, oh, okay, well, you didn't answer that because the answer to that would have been bad for you. And so since the motive for the murders was to get Trevor's money, he apparently was not willing to risk losing that money. And the lawyers knew it. But clearly, his whole plan hinges on acting like he's completely ignorant of the money. Again, the following has been edited for time and clarity. That is, up until March 3 of 1993, I'm looking for your understanding of what would happen to the $1.1 million future payment that we died. Well, I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about that. As I recall, I understood basically that if Trevor died after the settlement, that Millie and I would inherit his estate equally. Does that include the $1.1 million future payment, to your understanding? Yes. Any discussions of what would happen to Trevor's estate if Millie and Trevor died? Did I have any discussions? Yes. No. Uh, have you, up until March 3, 1993, my understanding from your testimony is you've never discussed with anyone what happens to Trevor's estate if Millie and Trevor both died? Right. There are times when it seems like he's trying not to incriminate himself. And then there are times when he tells the truth. In the deposition, they ask him if he called Millie on March 2nd, just hours before she was killed. He says yes, that it was the last time he talked to her. How long did it last? I'm not certain. Was it half an hour? Was it no, no, it was, it, was, it was short, but uh, it was nice. You've heard excerpts already where he talks about his relationship with Millie, but I'm going to let it play now. Describe for us now your relationship with Millie from 1987 until her death. Well, pretty much the same as it was as far as the roller coaster up and down, unpredictable, hot and cold. Well, you say it was hot and cold, and I assume when you say it was cold at times, uh, there was uh, uh, some kind of distance between you. Or uh, when you say it was hot at times from 1987 until her death, what do you mean? Uh, Millie was very moody, and it's like uh, I would call her at times, and uh, she wouldn't speak to me. At other times, uh, she would. So it was. It got to be uh, how lucky I was uh, as far as when I was able to, uh, you know, to contact her. 
and remember this moment. At the time that you married Millie Murray, uh, did you love her? So when Lawrence is giving this deposition, he knows Thomas Turner is talking. He knows James Perry's house has been searched. He knows the FBI is monitoring his phones. And still, this is his answer to the question, did you love her? It's chilling. It's almost like he couldn't help himself. But to admit something so cold when he was under investigation for her murder. Do you remember the way that he talked about his relationship with Millie? Yeah, he struck me. I mean, I'm not going to try to play, you know, armchair psychologist, but I mean, he struck me very much as a narcissist. I mean, it seemed as if he was the center of his universe and everybody else was in orbit around that. On July 19th, 1994, just a week or so after Lawrence gave this deposition, He was arrested by federal agents in Hollywood. Perry was taken into custody that same day by the FBI in Detroit. So the deposition had helped to unravel their plan. So he was so confident that he wouldn't be indicted that he was willing to say things that could potentially perjure himself? Oh, Oh, he did perjure himself. (laughs) Absolutely. The attorneys that represented him are very competent attorneys, so I have every reason to believe that he was fully advised about the risk that he was taking. I'm sure he really knowingly made that determination that he could kind of maneuver the whole thing and try to come out on top. We videotaped the deposition. It was two days, and we just took the videotapes over to the state's attorney's office. He lied about many things, and I think that was very instrumental, and that ultimately was what led to his indictment. Oh, another thing. Investigators had been trying to figure out how or how much, or even if, Lawrence had paid James Perry. As always, this case came back to... Money. Money. Where did the money come from? Well, Dean knew Perry used Western Union from when they searched his apartment. So he went through hundreds of transactions from Western Union. Of course, Lawrence's name was nowhere to be found. But there were several transactions from Los Angeles. In the five months leading up to the murders, James Perry and his girlfriend received money transfers in amounts totaling $6,000, which is around the same amount of upfront payment the Hitman book suggests. In these payments from Los Angeles came from a man named George Shaw. And George Shaw, whoever he was, and our theory was it was Lawrence Horn, of course, one of the addresses he used was the old address of Motown in Los Angeles. He used a phone number of Motown. And that wasn't all. It was a feeling that I had that, you know, there there had to be a, a code to break. I can remember going over to the University of Maryland library one night. And, and I, I really don't know why I did this other than just out of curiosity, but I started looking for back copies of the Los Angeles Times on microfiche. And in the July 27, 1992 edition, Dean found the obituary from a man named George Shaw. 
and on that same page, there was a very large article about Mary Wells. Mary Wells was a famous Motown singer, known for the song My Guy. I almost fell off my chair. <laughs> I said, oh my, I said, that, that works. <laughs> it's remarkable that Dean found this. And his theory was that while Lawrence Horn was reading the obituary for an old Motown friend, he saw this name, George Shaw, and found his alias, then used former Motown contact information for this George Shaw. So even when the stakes were high, even when he was engineering a hit on his own family, Lawrence held on to that legacy, that reminder of his greatness. During one of our interviews, I asked Prosecutor Bob Dean to read some of his closing statements. And who are we sentencing? Well, not the Lawrence Horn of the 1950s or the 1960s, who was a sound engineer for so many of those songs that so many of us like and snap our fingers to, to happy days. No, we're dealing with the Lawrence Horn of the late 80s and early 90s. We're dealing with someone totally different. Basically spent his time in 1992 crafting a coast-to-coast -coast conspiracy of death. That's what he did. That's how this man decided to use his talents. We're sentencing a man who buried his past of the 50s and 60s and 70s in Detroit. He had a secret life, he had secret hopes, and in the 90s he developed a secret plan. Three years after Millie Horn, her son Trevor, and his nurse Janice Saunders were killed, James Perry was convicted and sentenced to death three times, which was later overturned in an appeal, and a new trial sentenced him to three life terms. Lawrence Horn was found guilty on three counts of first-degree murder and one murder of conspiracy, and sentenced to life in prison. The civil case was put on hold while the criminal case went forward. It was reopened after Lawrence was convicted. Part of the summary judgment was asking the court to determine that Lawrence Horn, you know, because of the Slayer's Rule, could not share in the distribution of Trevor's estate. The court ruled, and so he was there and he heard it. And I think he knew that at that point the gig was up, it was over. You know, I mean, obviously the plan had failed. He was going to live the rest of his life behind bars. This actually isn't the last time you'll hear about the Horn family in this podcast. There's a lot more, including a battle with Hitman's publisher, Paladin Press, and the First Amendment that went all the way up to the Supreme Court. But we're going to be back with you in two weeks, when I'm going to first tell you the story behind Paladin. And I'll start unearthing the truth behind the book Hitman, including the other time I know someone used it. This book says Rex Farrell is a professional hitman, and he's going to give you all of his secrets. So, was Rex a hitman? Now, I, I don't think we'll ever know, but I'd say that there's a good probability. Of course, if we, every department had a cold case squad, they could go back and look at the things in those books and then compare them with what they have. I think they may be able to find some things like that. But, uh, you know, that's, that's a luxury most departments don't have.
Hitman is a production of iHeartRadio and Hit Home Media. It's produced and reported by me, Jasmine Morris. Our supervising producer is Michelle Lance. Mark Lotto is our story consultant. Executive producers are Mangesh Hatikidor and me. Mixing by Michelle Lance and Jacopo Penzo. Our fact checkers are Austin Thompson and Natsumi Ajisaka. Special thanks to Andrew Goldberg, Lucas Riley, Gabe Luzier, and the Montgomery County State's Attorney's Office, as well as the Montgomery County Courthouse. Our theme song by Elise McCoy and additional music, written and produced by the students at Dime, powered by the Detroit Institute of Music Education. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold Blooded, the Apollo Jim murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how three 20-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.